Well, I want to show you a picture of a three-year-old boy, and I want you to tell me if uh, you know who this, uh, this little guy is. Um, anybody know who this guy is? That's right. John F. Kennedy, JFK, John John. That's what he was known in the White House. That was his, that was his name, John John. That's who that is. Does anybody know where that picture was taken? That's right. That's right. Beneath JFK's desk in the Oval Office, huh? John John's. John John, that was his favorite hiding place. That was his favorite place. Uh, underneath his father's desk in the Oval Office, the, the Resolute Desk, that's what it was called. It's a gift from Queen Victoria to President Rutherford B. Hayes in 1880, in case you wanted to know. But that's where J John John would often hide. And there, there's that secret desk built into the door. Uh, the secret door built into the desk, rather, and uh, he'd play there and, and bring his toys there, and sometimes one of the White House staff would have to take John John out from beneath the desk when President Kennedy had, you know, his meetings there in the Oval Office, and one of those uh, White House staffers was a guy by the name of uh, Preston Bruce, and uh, Preston Bruce once said that, you know, he said, sometimes I'd be asked to fetch John John because there was business that needed to be done there in the Oval Office that would be better accomplished without John John there, and so I'd have to, you know, pull him away from his daddy, and so, you know, you got a little scene there, and a little guy being pulled away from the president, and, you know, you can imagine that scene with the president going, come on, John John, come on, honey, let's go. Daddy's got to let you go. He's going to have to bomb Cuba now. Come on. And, and, I mean, I mean, two worlds were going on right around that desk. Two worlds. Below the desk, there's one world. The world of a three-year-old boy who's playing trucks and cars. A world in which he's kind of absorbed in his own vrooming and screeching and crawling and playing and hiding and seeking and opening doors and closing doors, and that's his reality, that's his world, the world below the desk, below the desk. But then there's the world above the desk, the world of the Oval Office, the world of the Commander-in-Chief of the American Empire, the world above the desk where decisions are made and treaties are signed and laws are passed and heads of state are conferred with and orders are issued the world above the desk. Below the desk, John John plays with soldiers and planes. Above the desk, his father orders planes to spy on the Cuban Missile Crisis. One world makes the other world possible, you know. The world above the desk makes the world below the desk happen. And if the world above the desk goes down, there's not going to be a world below the desk. Two worlds, above the desk and below the desk. I mean, they're so close in proximity, and yet each has a distinct view of reality. Both are real, and yet, and yet the, one is more real. One is, is 
really real. One is real reality. That desk, above it and below it. It's a great, it's a great picture. I mean, it's just a great picture. And if we could possibly zoom out that picture even further, if it were possible to even do that, if we could widen that picture and broaden the scope of that photograph, I believe that we would yet see another desk, a desk above that desk, a desk which sits above even the president himself and every other president and every other king and every other empire. A desk which would show even this president and all other presidents to be, to be the one himself who's talking and running and playing and hiding and opening and closing and vrooming and screeching. Oh yeah. And this other desk is a desk which no photograph has ever been captured, yet, yet it is one in which has been captured by the eye of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn there. It's on page 869 of your church Bibles. The Apostle John shows us yet another desk Now, beneath this desk, the Apostle John himself has been suffering exile for the gospel. He's quarantined from his church family on the island of Patmos. Beneath this desk are the seven churches of Revelation. And some of those churches are healthy and some of those churches are highly dysfunctional. And beneath this desk are believers and some of them are suffering for their faith and they're feeling the pressure and stress of persecution. And yes, beneath this desk, some of us are suffering pressure and stress, and yes, maybe even persecution. And when you live beneath that desk and you feel what feels like unending pressure, it's easy to ask the question, well, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this all there is to life? Is this as good as it gets? Where is Jesus? What is he doing? And Revelation chapter 4 answers those questions because John gives us a picture of life above the desk. He wants us to see what's going on on the other side of the desk. And so what I just want to do uh, this morning, I want us to, I just want, I want to answer two questions. What's John seeing? What is he seeing? Let's just kind of walk through these verses, verse by verse. What is he seeing? And, and then what are these verses saying? What's he seeing and what's he saying? Well, you know, what does this say and what does this mean? Revelation chapter four, verse one. After this, this is John. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now it's interesting that in Revelation and especially in Revelation 3 and 4, you know, the word door appears like four times. In Revelation chapter 3, uh, 
it says that Jesus placed an open door before the church at Philadelphia. It was a door of, oppor- of opportunity. And, and then in Revelation, later on in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea had closed the, the bedroom door to her husband Jesus, who is knocking, wanting to enter and be in communion with his church. Here in Revelation chapter 4, the apostle John hears a voice calling him from a door, and it's a door standing open in heaven. And what John sees is much like the vision that, that Ezekiel, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah have seen. In fact, if uh, in your margin or in your notes, if you want to write down the scripture references, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, and Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. These these, uh, throne room scenes. Verse 2 says, at once I was in the spirit. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Was it an out-of-body experience? Was it like, you know, uh, was it like um, Edmund and Peter and Susan and Lucy Stepping into Narnia? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that John was consciously caught up in another realm, in another dimension. He wasn't dreaming. This wasn't some wispy, foggy, hazy-like experience. It was clear and it was brilliant. He goes through the door and John says, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. John saw the Lord enthroned and seated in splendor. Beneath the desk are these petty rulers, the John Johns, beneath the desk, the Emperors, the Caesars, the kings, the queens, the presidents, they're all playing trucks. That's what they're doing. But above the desk, God reigns supreme. And and John saw God's supremacy, the supremacy of of the Almighty. And, And notice that the Almighty is described not with a facial composite, okay? No, no, no. No, John's description, what John saw regarding God's splendor had to do with all that happened from the throne and all that went on around the throne. Verse 3 says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, if you don't have an imagination, this chapter is going to really frustrate you. I mean, John, you know, John uses words like, 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 as. That's what got it started in our country, like, like, like this, like that. Our kids have just been reading Revelation. That's where this comes from. It's a simile. It's a simile. We're going to see appearance re- resembling, like, as, appearance of. John is straining. He is frustrated by how tissue thin his human language is to describe the thickness and the richness and the density of heavenly splendor. He sees transparent, translucent, like gem, like brilliance, the appearance of jasper, a precious stone. Uh, scholars tell us perhaps that was even a diamond representing majesty and holiness and purity and, and carnelian, which was a blood red precious stone perhaps signifying judgment and justice and and God's wrath and and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne the rainbow a sign 
of the covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And you remember the rainbow in the Old Testament was a signal that the old had gone and the new had come. You see, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's color, there's art, and there's kaleidoscopic brilliance. Stepping into the throne room of heaven is not like stepping into the office of your orthodontist. There's beauty, there's majesty, there's glory, there's imagination. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So there's this big throne. There's this throne in the center. There's God's throne, and there are 24 other thrones, and on them 24 elders. Now, who are these elders? Who are these elders? I think, um, I think they were a ruling class of angels who surrounded the throne and helped lead in the worship of Almighty. And the number 24 has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. In other words, all of the people of God are represented here. The entire community of the redeemed are represented in this scene Verse 5 says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the, here it is, sevenfold spirit of God. So God, the Holy Spirit, is amidst the throne, you see. Our triune God is, is evident there. See? And verse 6 says, in the center around the throne, were four living creatures. It's, it's almost like a scene out of a science fiction movie or something. Four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Now, that is one ugly creature. You know, I mean, right? I mean, if you, if you focus on that literally, well, you know, you're, it's, oh, I don't know. You know, uh, even under their wings, what is all, what is, well, what, what, does, what would that, what's that signify? Think about that for a minute. If there's eyes all over, what, what does that, what's that signify? What's that mean? They can see. They, they can see. They don't miss anything. They see everything. They're agent. They are agents of the Almighty. Watching and looking and observing. Their radars are on. They are totally aware, totally alert. They miss nothing. They see the suffering of God's people underneath the desk. They see what's going on there, and they also see the evil that is being afflicted against God's people, which is why they're suffering. So if they don't miss a thing, they represent the Almighty. And yet at the same time, look, it says the first creature was like a lion. Like, uh, the second creature was like an ox. The third creature had the face like a man. The fourth creature was like an eagle. So on the one hand, while... You know, they saw everything that was going on as a representative of, of the Almighty. They also represented all of creation. These creatures represent all of animate creation. Psalm 150, verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so the, so the lion, the lion, which is the pinnacle of nobility, and the ox, the pinnacle of strength, the face like a man, the pinnacle of wisdom. And the fourth creature like an eagle, the pinnacle of swiftness and speed. So 
these creatures represent all of animate creation. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Listen, humans are not the only creatures privileged to worship the greatness of God. The entire animal world, all of creation was made to worship God's supremacy and beauty and honor and majesty. And these two hymns These two hymns are what are spoken and sung and proclaimed in this amazing throne room scene. The first hymn, you are are holy. You are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then you are worthy. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And I mean, day and night, these creatures, they never stop saying it. They're saying it now. Even as our service is conducted there in the throne room, they were saying it while we were sleeping. They're saying it while we eat and work and relax and nap and worry and pray and pay bills and write checks and fall in love. Holy, holy, holy. And then when the four creatures do this, then the, then the 24 elders get off of their thrones and take off their crowns and they fall on their faces and they cry out, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You are holy, you are worthy. You are holy, you are worthy. You are holy, and it's going on and on and on and on. And that's chapter four. That's it. Isn't it? This amazing throne room scene. This, this, this throne room saturated, worship saturated scene. That's what this is. So what? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the significance of this? What's the meaning of this? What's the message here? You know, what's, what, what are these verses saying? All right, that's what John saw, but what, did, what does this vision say? What's the significance of it? Here it is, right here. It means that right here, right now, there is someone in charge of this universe. That's what this means. There is someone who is above the desk one who sits on what is like, look at verse six, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Look, beneath the desk, the, the ancient Hebrews, I mean, they were terrified of the ocean. They were ter- We don't read in the Bible much about Israel's navy. We don't, right? Because <laughs> they were scared of the ocean. To them, it was chaotic and frenzied and out of control and unmanageable. And beneath the desk, absolutely, but above the desk, above the desk, oh, that same manic, frenzied, chaotic ocean was just as clear as crystal and as still. In fact, the throne just sat on it. Because God's in charge. He is the one seated on the throne. And this vision, this scene is a direct assault. In John's day, it was a direct assault upon the Roman Empire and the throne room of Caesar, who himself was worshipped as deity and to whom patriotic Roman citizens paid homage in those seven cities and throughout the empire. You see, the book of Revelation is the most 
explicitly counter-imperial book in the Bible, and it asserts in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is Caesar, master, king, and supreme sovereign over all. He is the Pantocrator, the almighty Lord of all. Jesus is supreme over Muhammad. He is supreme over Buddha. He is supreme over Moses. He is king over North America, South America, Central America, Europe, China, India, Russia, Africa, Australia, North and South Poles. He is supreme over every nation. He rules the Taliban, and he is in control of Al-Qaeda. Jesus reigns. Amen. And what is happening above the desk, church family assures believers who are beneath the desk, those who are feeling the weight and pressure and stress of suffering. Jesus wants you to know that what seems chaotic and manic and out of control is in fact under the sovereign control of the one above the desk who sees your stress. He sees, he sees your achievements and he sees your health and he sees your victories and he sees your defeats. The eyes are everywhere. He doesn't miss a thing. And he is in charge of our country's future, and he's in charge of your future, and he's in charge of the economy, and he's in charge of the war on terror. He knows what he's doing, and his world above the desk makes your world below the desk possible. JFK's world made John John's world possible. And that makes JFK's world more important. And that makes God's world most important. And I would have as much luck trying to grasp God's complete plan as three-year-old John John would have had trying to grasp the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that makes God more important. And that makes what we say about him most important. You are worthy and you are holy. God's worthiness is more important than my personal well-being. And God's holiness is more important than my personal happiness. Someone once said, where everything is measured by our happiness rather than by God's holiness, the idea of me being a sinner becomes secondary, if not outright offensive. And so the very best thing that people can do with whatever authority or crown they have, the very best people, very best thing people can do is to get off their throne, all right? Hmm? You got a throne in your life? You're, you're, how many of our dads had a throne? You bet. Dads, they got a throne. It's in the family room, right? You played on that and you sat on that, but when dad came in the room, you got off. And dad's right. Didn't even need to tell you. And if he did, he wouldn't tell you again. You go in the dining room, he's got a throne there. And you don't sit in that throne, you sit on your little throne. He's got his big throne. We got our thrones. Right? And the very best thing that people can do with whatever crown they have is to take that crown off their head and get off of their throne and fall before the feet 
of Jesus, fall before the feet of the one who is on the big throne and who has the big crown. And all of you, all of you, you give me a little bit of authority each week to stand up here and do this. You give me a little crown. And the best thing I can do with that is to take it off and put it at the feet of Jesus. That's the best thing. You see, whether you know it or not, there's a Revelation chapter 4 going on in your life. There is. Your life and my life. See, your life and my life, we orbit around something or someone. And the the reason why that's true is because we were made to worship. We were made to praise. We're wired to worship. And right now, there's a lot of energy and a lot of activity and a lot of thunder and a lot of lightning and a lot of rumblings orbiting around a throne in your life. So what is that throne? What is it? Is it money? Is it lack of money? Is it worry? Is it anxiety? Is it beauty? Is it trying to keep control? Is it a relationship? Is it a chemical? What is it? What's your crown? See, any, the, the thing that is most important to you, that's your crown. And people say, I, I don't take my crown off for it. You know what? The only people who haven't taken off their crowns are the ones who are holding on to their crowns, which means they're worshiping control. If you live for control, then control has you under control. Listen, you cannot be a human without worship, and you cannot worship without losing control. You, and you always lose control of anything you worship. Always. So what, what's your Revelation chapter 4 look like? The Apostle John informs us that if our Revelation chapter 4 doesn't match this, we're worshiping the wrong God. A guy by the name of uh, Richard Keyes wrote a book called The Idol Factory. In it, he said, if we try to make something finite fill the place that only God can fill, we will try to extract an unrealistic level of meaning from that idol. And when it does not work, it invites us only to try harder. And these idols have promised life, but they're death-dealing They're anti-human and they're constricting. The idol begins as a means to power, enabling us to control, but then overpowers controlling us. And that is a straight, that's a role reversal straight from the Psalms. Psalm 115 verse 8 says, those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in him. Do you hear what John is saying in this vision? Do you hear what's being said here? Church family, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. Whatever we revere, we resemble, whether for ruin or restoration. And Revelation 4 gives us the vision of what is most worthy to worship. And Revelation chapter 4 gives us our destiny. This is our destiny. This is our finish line. This is, this is, this is home. This is your home. This is my home. Revelation 4. It's the finish line. You know, we're going to have a marathon next month, right? It is next month. It's March 1st. So, yes, it's next month. We're going to have a marathon in April. And, and you know, it's interesting. We, for all the talking we do about heaven and the finish line, for all the talking we do about heaven, we like to talk about it like it's really eternally important, but then we often live like it doesn't even exist. We are like runners who fear 
the finish line. Think about that. Why would a runner be afraid of the finish line? We go through life with little sense of what heaven's going to be like. We carry on with our own lives, fixated on the here and now, below the desk with our little toys and little trucks, oblivious to life above the desk. And and the the possibility of, of thinking about life above the desk in Revelation 4, I mean, much less hoping for it, often can get washed away in the quagmire and the torrent and the details of daily life. Revelation chapter 4 invites us to see the finish line and share in it right now as if we're already there because that's what happens every Sunday in corporate worship when we glorify God together as a community. We are reminded that ultimately our home lies above the desk. Don't get too comfortable here. This is not your home. We're just renting. We're just renting. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. And Revelation tells us that there is one who is holy and there is one who is worthy. And that one is Jesus. And you know, that's why John got to see this vision, see. John got to see this because who was the one who invited him in? Who who is the one whose voice was like the trumpet? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Because only Jesus can invite us in. Only Jesus And there's no reason to believe anything that's true about the. There's no reason to believe the truth of this vision. There's no reason to believe that this is actually true if it weren't for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Who himself said in John 3.13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus here in Revelation 4 says, this is your home, Randy. And this is your home. Bill, and this is your home, Mary. This is your home, church family. Come in, take a look, see. You become what you worship. 